Okay, today we are uh, in uh, Genesis chapter 42. We started this chapter last week, which, uh, as we mentioned, is kind of a uh, step forward in the narrative. We are now at that point where uh, Joseph's brothers arrive in Egypt from Canaan in order to buy grain during the famine and have their first encounter with their brother, whom, of course, at this point they do not recognize. And uh, so we looked at last week, we looked at about the first nine verses or so. We stopped there at the end of verse nine, where he had accused them of being spies. And uh, today we I'd like to pick it up with verse 10 and try to get down through about verse 20. Uh, we are as we go through this chapter, we're kind of breaking at very awkward points because the narrative kind of just flows nonstop. Uh, so uh, when we broke it uh, at verse 9 last week, we kind of ended with him making the charge that they were spies, but before they answer his charge. So it's kind of an awkward place to break, and, and that'll be the case as we go through the chapter. We have to break it somewhere uh, simply because uh, uh, otherwise we'd never get... We'd be in here for a four-hour Bible study, but <coughs> um, which is okay with me, but you guys probably wouldn't like that. Uh, so we, so the breaks are not real natural, so I hope they don't bother you too much, but that's kind of just the way it uh, seems like we have to do it. So, so last week we did, we looked at verses 1 through 9, and uh, just by way of review, let's kind of prime the pump here and see if we can remember what we talked about last week. Let me get out from underneath that air blowing down there. <laughs> okay. He was pretty harsh with them. What was the reason for his harshness according to the text? Well, yeah, we did talk about that, but it actually tells us. Okay, he remembers the dream, which accounts for why he, why he accused them of spying. But when it talks about him, his harsh words, what are the reasons for his harsh words? No, he's disguising himself. Right, so. They're not used to their little brother talking to them this way, okay? So that's actually part of his disguise. It's part of his covering up. We'll talk a little bit more about that today, about his harsh words. But, but the reason for his harshness is not because he's angry with them or because he's bitter towards them or he's vengeful towards them, but rather it's part of his disguise. How else is he? Why else is he not? Is it not obvious to them that this is Joseph? Okay, okay. This guy just doesn't look anything like that Hebrew shepherd that they used to know as their little brother. Okay, he's uh, he's clean shaven. He's wearing Egyptian clothes. He's speaking through an interpreter. He speaks Egyptian. Uh, he's married to an Egyptian wife. I don't know if they could detect that or not, but you know he has Egypt. He's he's been completely naturalized as an Egyptian externally. Now we did talk about last week that his that he still has affections for 
his, uh, his home and his family, and, and he, he names his children Hebrew names. Uh, so it's not like he's completely forgotten his identity as a Hebrew, but, but in order to assimilate and to fit into the culture, he's, he's, uh, he's adopted these external evidences of being an Egyptian. So, so even apart from his language, when they came to see him, they wouldn't immediately recognize him. Go, oh, this is Joseph. Okay. What else? I don't know if you talked about this, but the, in the first verse, there's a, a phrase that's kind of curious to me, and especially having sons myself, I'm thinking, wow, he's still having to talk to his sons like this. Why are you scaring them one another? <laughs> sure. Did you talk about that or mm-hmm. the difference in that? Is that just kind of a, an idiom maybe that they used back then? Uh, no, actually, I think it's indicative of the state of mind that his sons are in. Uh, yeah, the, the, one of the things that we talked about is is we spent the last three chapters or so in Egypt with Joseph and looking at all the changes that Joseph goes through and the transformation that Joseph goes through in Egypt. And now the narrator brings us back all of a sudden back to Canaan and back to Hebron and back to the tents of Jacob and we find a family that's unchanged. They're still the way they were 20-some years ago. We still have... The favoritism being shown. Jacob hasn't changed. The brothers are still kind of uh, listless and, and they show no real moral courage or, or direction. And so I think that that's reflected in, in that statement there. Did you have any other thoughts on it? Well, I just think, you know, the sons have to grow up. And if my sons keep doing that, it's going to be a long, long, <laughs> long 20 years. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's I think, what's going on. That, well, they have, yes. I mean, they're not, uh, obviously, they're not giving Benjamin a hard time to get Joseph, so apparently they have thrown out of that. Uh, that, of course, yeah, that, of course, is something Joseph has to figure out, isn't it? But that becomes obvious, yes, that they, that they have, uh, they've adapted a different attitude towards Benjamin. Okay. Why he came in for another say. Okay. It was the youngest, but okay. I was seeing even one back just because it was going to be a waste. There's a lot of people on the road and okay. it's a good time. Well, one of the families here. So, so a way to preserve the family. Okay. Okay. That's a distinct possibility. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anything else? You look like you're cogitating that here. Well, I think there's the 10 brothers that went Okay. 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 We have no idea whether Benjamin is married at this point. Yeah, there's no indication that he's married. Yeah. Well, aside the related issue, I, this could be a long rabbit trail, so I'll stay a little succinct and not. I'm sure you won't want to get off of that. But I heard that heard someone who has has done apparently quite a bit of research in family dynamics and what happens when families don't allow one another to change. Uh, I just heard this interview just this last week, and it sounds like that's what's going on here. The point being, um, and this happened to me when I was young, before I got married, I'd go back home, even though I'd become a Christian, 
when I was not home, I went back home, I got back in the same habits, had the same old friends. Mm-hmm. My mom, my brother started treating, were treating me the way they treated me back mm-hmm. then. Yeah, yeah. And the point this guy was making is that we do that with our whole family. Yeah. And so people come back and we don't allow them to take, well, you know, we think we're, they're just like they were. Yeah. So we treat them that way and they're, they're fighting against it because we're not that way anymore. Yeah. That's an interesting point, and I, and I think I think at this point we could say, as we'll discover as we go forward in the narrative, that Joseph is to be commended because he doesn't just assume that his brothers are have exactly the same framework they had 20 years before, but he's giving them the benefit of the doubt. You you show to me, you demonstrate to me that you've changed, and we'll see how he does that. But so that's an interesting point. Yeah. What else have we talked about last week? more on that this week reading the commentaries I don't think that was an easy thing for him to do um, you know you're you're there it's been all these years and and of course Mike suggested that he might have anticipated that the brothers would show up knowing that people were coming from all over the world and that sort of thing and of course that's a, a distinct possibility uh, but but whether or not he anticipated he's sitting there and now they're you know, they're right in front of him and they're coming and they're bowing down and just the natural human instinct would be just kind of let it all hang out. The natural human instinct would be, you know, to say, you know, whether you were whether you wanted revenge or didn't want revenge, it still would be the instinct to say, hey, you know who I am? I'm Joseph. I'm your brother, you know, and and, and that sort of thing. And the, the, just the impulse, particularly if, if you have, like it's apparent that Joseph does, still some affection for his family, uh, the, 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 the rising emotions that he feels of love and, and wanting to reconnect with his family uh, would have presumably been quite intense. And one of the commentators suggests, and I think maybe there's some merit to this, that one of the reasons for the intensity of of his accusation and he repeats it and he's very he's very harsh with them and uh, and of course it makes it clear that he's doing that in part to conceal who he really is uh, and I think that possibly one of the things he's doing in that in in coming across so harsh with his brothers is, 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 is it's his attempt to suppress or conceal those rising emotions that he has in himself of wanting to just disclose and hang out and say Hang it all out and say, I'm Joseph, I'm your brother, I'm okay, how's dad? You know, and of course, all that would have been counterproductive to what he really needed to accomplish. And so he puts on this very harsh, uh, almost tyrannical uh, uh, demeanor in order to squelch or to suppress or at least conceal those rising, the rising emotions that he has uh, of affection and love and desire to reconnect with his family and that sort of thing. So... So it's, there's, you know, as I, 
I love the story of Joseph and I love to think about it a lot and I love to put myself in the place of the various actors. And when I think about being in the place of Joseph, it's just such a, uh, you know, if you just imagine being in that situation, it's so just intense and so moving to think about. And, you know, it just it just even as spectators in it, I know, I know I feel this way and you may too. I, as I read this story, there are various points in which I'm just nearly moved to tears. And this is one of those points where he's, where he's there and his brothers come for the first time and he encounters his brother. And it almost moves you to tears. And it's no wonder as we read the story that we find that he is in fact moved to tears on more than one occasion. And uh, so... Uh, any rate, it's just a, it's a very profound thing, and, and so I assume that he's dealing with some pretty intense uh, feelings and emotions at this point. What else? You don't think he maybe just enjoyed a little bit of messing with him with the I I I think he probably did. Uh, I, I think he I think he behaved properly, but I. You know, he is human, and, uh, and and I wouldn't be surprised that to some degree in the back of his mind he was kind of chuckling a little bit at the circumstances. Pardon? Okay, yeah, yeah, we don't know. We don't really know. It doesn't. It, what's, what really strikes me about this narrative is how much it doesn't tell us. There's a lot it doesn't tell us, and so we, you know. This is the first time you've been harmed with anybody. You would have thought... Everybody that works around him off guard. Yeah. Well, I doubt that it's the first time he's been hard with people. This guy, uh, you know, this guy is a guy who's uh, been uh, he's been overseer of a prison, and now he's been dealing with politicians for eight years. So, uh, you know, so I, I think this guy's pretty savvy. So I doubt it's the first time he's had to be tough with people, but uh, but I don't think it's his. I don't think it's his personality. I don't think he's a grading personality. Somebody's going to say something over here. I just made me think, although I don't think the politicians of his day would have wanted to mess with him too much. <laughs> he had a lot of power. Yeah. yeah. What I started saying a minute ago was I think it's interesting that Joseph, that God allowed these things to happen to Joseph. And then God took his, for lack of a better term, enemies at the end and he placed them right in his hand. Mm-hmm. You can do whatever you want to. Yeah. Here they are. Yeah. These are the people that did you wrong. Yeah. Now, what do you want to do with them? Yeah. He could have killed them. He could have destroyed them. Yeah. Whatever you want to do. And in that, and then, and that's another dimension or another aspect, another way in which Joseph is for us a type of Christ, isn't it? Uh, we are. We were his enemies. We were his sworn enemies. We were haters of God. And instead, and we were at his mercy, and instead of destroying us, he works redemptively in our lives. It's just an unimaginable <laughs> the love of Christ, and Joseph is an example of that. I'm probably jumping ahead, but I was wondering how much he knew of the prophecies, whether Abraham had communicated it on down, or his dream that they would one and him out of the land. But you knew those guys had to be there to do that, and also where they would be captured in the town. And that he knew that prophecy, and he considered asking him to come to I assume he did. I assume he did because because until 
until these narratives and these stories were actually written down, they were communicated orally, and they had a very demanding way, a very precise way that they communicated those things to make sure that they were not forgotten or that they weren't lost. And so, yes, I assume, I assume that he had been trained in those, how much they... You know, how much he thought about them as he's going through these various situations, I have no idea. But I assume that he was very much aware of them. Even, yeah. even this early, you can, and you can maybe read more in there, but you can almost see the seeds of his plan evolving. Yes. To bring them back. Yes. Because he keeps one brother there knowing yes. you know, where yeah. I believe that I believe that there are uh, uh, two things going on in Joseph's plan here that he sets forth and then he alters it a little bit. But I, I believe there are two things that are going on. One is he's trying to determine what is the condition of his family. That's one thing he needs to know. He needs to know what are, where are my brothers, not geographically, but emotionally and spiritually and relationally. Where are my brothers? How are they relating to Benjamin? How are they relating to Dad? How are they going to relate to me? Those are things he needs to determine before he reveals himself. But the other thing, and I think this text makes that pretty clear, that he's acting on the basis of his remembrance of the dreams. It makes that pretty clear. He remembered his dreams and then accused them of spying. And we pointed that out last week, that that his accusation of spying is not associated with his mistreat with their mistreatment of him. His accusation of spying in the text is associated with his remembering of the dreams. So, it's, it, I think that the narrator makes it pretty clear from the outset, although it's hard for us to see it as we're going through the whole narrative, from the very outset, the narrator wants us to understand that Joseph is acting not, on, not because of his mistreatment, but because of the dreams that he had. In other words, he remembers that he was told in his dreams that all of his brothers would bow down to him. And then in a second dream... He was told that his brothers and his parents would bow down to him. And so in all of Joseph's actions, I think those dreams are in the back of his mind. And he's actually working, consciously working to finally complete the fulfillment of those dreams. Okay. now, one of the things that that I was reflecting on yesterday was we remember that. We've had three sets of two dreams each, right? We had originally Joseph's dreams, and then we had the dreams of the baker and the and the uh, uh, cupbearer, and then we have Pharaoh's dreams. And one of the things that we saw in the way Joseph interpreted the dreams of the two officials in prison, and the way he interpreted Pharaoh's dreams, we saw that one of the aspects of Joseph's gift of interpretation of dreams is that he's able to look at two dreams side by side and determine whether or not those two dreams are one distinct message or two distinct messages. Okay? And he's able to look at that. He's able to detect from the dream whether or not it's one distinct message or two distinct messages. And so I'm assuming that in Joseph's mind, as he's reflecting back on his dreams and now looking at his brothers and figuring out Okay, I'm here at point A. How do I get to point B? Okay, I think one of the things he realizes is that there are two steps to this process. There's a step in which my brothers will bow down to me. And then there's a second step in which my brothers and my parents together will bow down to me. 
and he has those two distinct dreams, and I assume he sees them as two distinct events that he is somehow going to help facilitate uh, as things move forward. So that's all stuff to think about as you as you study this narrative and this story. You know, Rick, the uh, interesting thing here is he's, it appears that he is thinking, I need to do something to make this promise of God come true. Well, his father and his great-grandfather, I don't remember if his grandfather, but his great-grandfather Abraham, they tried to do that same thing and they messed up. Yeah. Okay, I've got to do this thing to make the promise of God happen, and they did it wrong. Yeah. So now here he is in the same situation. Yeah. Yeah, and that's another thing that's fascinating about this this story is that all the way up to this point, the fulfillment of dreams has been completely in God's hands. God's been doing the whole thing up to this point. Okay, Joseph has been probably in large measure unaware of how these dreams were going to be fulfilled. And then all of a sudden at this point, he's right on the verge where they're almost fulfilled. Uh, uh, ten of his eleven brothers have already bowed down to him, so there's only one left to fulfill that that dream. Okay, and then there's the second dream with his parents. Okay, and it's like at this point God just kind of turns it over to Joseph and says, "Okay, now Joseph, you finish it." And and that's a fascinating aspect of this story. Uh, yes, go ahead. Same result. I got a different twist on that. Okay. I think his brothers are in front of him. Uh huh. Okay. Well, that's a good point. Yeah. So the dream, in some in some ways, are acting as the direction is how he ought to act. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So I think it could be. I don't think it's one or the other. I think it's both. Really. Yeah. Good point. Well, let's go on then and pick up the story. They have now, you know, they've come. They're they're in this very vulnerable position. They've bowed down before Zaphonath Paneah, uh, this great man that they've been hearing about for, you know, some time. And now they're before him and they bow down before him and they've come to buy food. And they think, you know, they're just thinking all is going to go well here. And then this guy just lashes out at them and says, you guys are spies. And they're just kind of thrown back on their heels. You can imagine the shock and the terror that they feel being in the presence, you know, being in a foreign land, being in the presence of this great ruler, second in command over all of Egypt, one of the most powerful men in all the world, a man whose reputation has spread all over the world. And they're now before this guy and he's accusing them of spying. As I mentioned last week, that's not a... As we read the story, it kind of seems like it comes out of the blue. You know, where does Joseph pull this out of? Like he just kind of pulls it out of his hat. But in reality, this is part of Joseph's job description. Okay, he's he is the one to whom all these foreigners are coming to buy food, and as in his position so high up in in the uh, rule of Egypt, one of his jobs is to determine how these people, all these foreigners, are to come into his land. You know, there's always the possibility of spies and people with ill intent, particularly given the fact that all the rest of the world is starving to death and Egypt's loaded with food. So they are very, in one sense, a very uh, desirable country to invade or to pilfer or, or whatever. So clearly one of Joseph's jobs as people come to him to buy food is he's got to ferret out which ones of these people are 
you know, legitimate people here to buy food and which ones of them have uh, other ulterior motives. So it's not a charge that just kind of comes out of the blue. It seems to in the text to us, but we, when you stop and think about it, you realize this is his job. Go ahead. Do you think it was common uh, for Uh, he, it makes it clear in the text that he was the one who sold food to him. Yeah, it makes it clear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Apparently. Yeah. yeah. Well, it says the people of Egypt too. Uh, where's the verse? Uh, uh, okay. Uh, now Joseph was the ruler over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. So it seems like, yeah, everybody in some sense comes to Joseph and particularly the foreigners come to Joseph. The smart thing is, I think he set that up so he would know when his brothers came. But that would okay. be a typical job, I would think, you know, he would send out to his underlings. Yeah, okay. Yes, yes, that's right. Yeah. Uh, my assumption is that that in some sense, everybody came to Joseph and how that played out, I don't know. But it's pretty clear here the foreigners are coming to Joseph. And like you said, he may have set that up, which kind of goes along with Mike's thought last week that, that he anticipated that they would come. So uh, maybe that's a possibility. Like we said, there's much in the narrative that it doesn't tell us. So, um, But uh, lest we never get to today's lesson, uh, <laughs> pick it up in verse 10. And it says, then they said to him, no, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. Yet he said to them, no, but you have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. But they said, your servants are 12 brothers in all, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is with our father today. And one is no longer alive. Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this, you will be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you that he may get your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. But if not by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So they put so he put them all together in prison for three days. Now, Joseph said to them on the third day, do this and live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined in your prison. But as for the rest of you, go carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words may be verified and you will not die. And they did so. Okay. Well, so in in the passage we're looking at today, then we we have this interaction back and forth between the brothers and, and Joseph. And we, we begin here at this point with their their initial defense of themselves. Okay. And their defense of themselves consists of kind of three assertions. They make three assertions uh, in defense of themselves. And what are those three things that they assert? Okay. The first thing they assert is that they're all brothers of one man. And we'll come back and talk about that in a minute. The second thing they assert is what? 
We're honest men. Okay, now don't laugh, folks. But that's their assertion. Okay, we are honest men. You're laughing. <laughs> we are honest men. And then the third thing they assert is what? No, we're not spies. Okay, so three assert in their first defense. There's three assertions. Okay, we're all the sons of one man. We are honest men. We are not spies. Okay. And they really kind of start with their strongest argument first. Okay. Their strongest argument is we are all the sons of one man. How would that counter the charge that they are spies? One man can't take over a country. You would send in multiple different people. Okay. 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 What else? We're a family. Okay. Okay, you don't you don't risk a family. You don't risk an entire family. Okay, you don't risk ten sons. Spying is a pretty dangerous thing. It is today. It was even more so in those days. Okay, pretty dangerous thing. Okay, so you would not. What they're what they're asserting is it's ridiculous to assume that one man would risk ten of his sons in such a such a dangerous venture as sending us to spy in the land of Egypt. Okay. Now, of course, there are arguments against that. You could, you know, you could make some. There's always arguments against every every uh, proposition that somebody makes. But but it is a pretty strong argument, and it is the argument that they will revert to when Joseph doesn't accept their state, their initial uh, their initial defense. This is the one they'll focus on. Okay. Is this argument that we are all sons of one man? Okay. But in making the claim that they are all sons of one man, they have opened the door to Joseph. Okay, this is exactly what Joseph wants. He wants them to begin to talk about themselves because that's what he needs to learn. Okay, so they have opened the door. Then their second assertion is what? We are honest men. Okay, are they? Well, yes and no. Okay. in regard to their coming to Egypt to buy food, are they honest men? Yeah, of course, they are honest. Okay, so in that respect, they are honest. But these are not men who have lived a lifestyle of integrity. Okay. These are the brothers who deceived and slaughtered an entire city, the city of Shechem. These are the brothers who sold one of their brothers into slavery and then made it look like he had been killed by a wild beast and took that evidence back to their father and let their father go through that intense mourning and grieving and sense of loss and have apparently watched him suffer through that now for over 20 years without ever coming clean. Now, in, in the lesson and verse we're going to get to in either next week or the following week, there, there is a statement that, Joseph, uh, that Jacob makes that could be interpreted to understand that by this point he knows the truth about him. Okay, uh, because he says at one point he says, "You guys," uh, I'm just uh, paraphrasing here. He says, "You guys have been responsible for the loss of Simeon and the loss of Joseph, and now you want me to lose Benjamin too." Okay, and so he attributes the loss of Joseph to his sons to his ten sons. Uh, And so it would seem like it might seem like at that point that that Jacob has been clued in somehow as to what really happened. But I would suggest that's not the case. 
And the reason for that is not only does he blame them for the loss of Joseph, but he also blames them for the loss of Simeon. But they clearly are not responsible for the loss of Simeon. It's just that Jacob's looking for somebody to blame. Okay, He's got to blame it on somebody. And so he blames them. He holds them accountable for the loss of Simeon when really it was totally out of their control. And so I think probably that's also been what's going on with Jacob. So, or with uh, Joseph. But, so that... What I'm trying to say here is that these guys have lived a life of deception for a considerable period of time and possibly even up until this moment. Okay. And I assume that up until this moment, they have not come clean about Joseph, although you might, when we get to that verse, you might conclude otherwise, and that's fine. But clearly, for a significant period of time, they lived a life of deception. Okay. And so it's interesting to me that one of the ways that these guys defend themselves before Joseph is by an appeal to their to the integrity of their character. <laughs> and and you know our inclination when we read that is to kind of just laugh under our breath, you know, if we were there in the palace or whatever when this was going on and we heard those guys, you know, we'd have to, you know, kind of cover our mouths because it seems so ludicrous that these guys would, would, would say, well, if you want to know whether or not we're spies, just look at our integrity. You know? But, but as I thought about that and reflected on it, I thought how, how true that is to human nature. How true that is to human nature that we... that when we view ourselves... We don't do this with other people, but when we view ourselves... We always view ourselves in the best possible light, don't we? Or we almost always do. And, and so what these brothers are thinking, you know, now clearly, as we're going to see as the story unfolds, this whole, this whole guilt thing about Joseph is very, you know, it's not very far down under the surface. You know, it comes to the surface pretty quickly. But they've got it. They've got a veneer over it. They've got it covered over, okay? They've kind of managed to suppress it enough that it's not the foremost thing in their mind, okay? So when the issue of the quality of their character comes up, they point at the most recent thing they've done, which is being honest, and they say, well, see, we're just honest people. Without stopping to acknowledge that they've been pretty scandalous characters for you know a significant period of time and and that is in fact what we are so prone to do isn't it that when the question of the kind of person we are comes up what we want to always do is we always want to point at the good things we've done right that's why so many people who believe in heaven and hell Almost everybody who believes in heaven and hell assumes they're going to heaven. Because everybody can point at a few good things they've done in their lives. Right? You know, I love my kids. You know, I, you know, I, you know, I give to charity. You know, I go to church. I do this or I do that. So I'm a good person. But when, reality, when, when, when we look at people... Realistically, and we look at ourselves realistically, we realize what scandals we really are. We're haters of God, that we are haters of mankind, that we are filled with all kinds of vileness and evil and wickedness, and it's always just 
festering down there below us. But when somebody comes to us and shares the gospel with us, we go, well, I'm a good person. <laughs> you know, I mow my neighbor's lawn. I, you know, I do all these good things. And so I'm a good person. And we are, are and, you know, and this is, of course, true with unbelievers, but I think it's also true oftentimes with us as Christians. Why are we like that? Gary. Even if you don't believe that stuff is your basically good person, I think everybody thinks other people believe Okay. It reminds me of the episode of Cox. You know, they catch these guys and they just, and they know what they've done, but they always protest. Uh, yeah, 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 that's true. Yeah. Why are we like, oh. One of the One of the big reasons I know of is that we cannot live with that guilt. Yes. And I don't know if that's the biggest, but I know before I was a Christian, now I did whatever I could do yeah. to get rid of it, suppress it, you yeah. know, whether it was drugs or whatever it was, anything that escaped that guilt that I knew I was guilty of. So if that is true, and, and, I, and I do think it is true. I think that's probably the primary reason we do that. We can't cope with the realization of how corrupt and evil we really are. What is the mechanism or what is the vehicle that makes it possible for us to be honest about ourselves? Okay. The Holy Spirit. Uh, Okay, the grace, the grace of God, isn't it? It's the grace of God that makes us able to say to God and to say to others, I'm a scoundrel. I'm really vile. Okay. Now, I'm not suggesting as believers that we walk around, you know, beating ourselves, flogging ourselves with a cat of nine tails and talking about how evil we are because by the grace of God, we have been changed and we have been transformed. But we all know that that vileness is still down in there, isn't it? And it rears its ugly head from time to time and makes itself known. But it's the awareness of, it's the awareness of God's overwhelming grace that makes it possible for us to admit those things. And we have to admit those things before we can begin to change. Okay. So it's, it's the great, as he, as he says, it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. It's the, it's the awareness of the grace of God that makes it possible for us to, to be honest and not just pretend and say we are honest men, but to say, well, you know, we haven't always been honest. You know, and I kind of wonder how the story would have unfolded at this point. What, how would it have been different if these brothers at this point had said, not that necessarily it was given the context and from their frame of reference it wasn't particularly necessary for them to do this, but, but what if these brothers had just simply said to Zaphonaphpaneia, this great ruler, you know, we've been, we've been pretty scandalous in the way we've behaved in the past. And uh, to be honest with you, we're responsible for one of our brothers probably dying. We don't know what happened to him. And, uh, you know, our other brother's back home because dad doesn't really trust us too much. You know? What if they said that? Well, it's interesting that they, it doesn't say who said what. That's true. Yeah. As opposed to they answer. Yeah. I'm thinking that there is a 
whole lot of conversation going on there. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them are talking at the same time. Yeah. And this is probably a conglomeration yes. of everybody yeah. treating this yeah. defense. Yeah. And somebody said something, and then they just kind of rolled it all in with one answer. Yeah. So it's interesting that somebody put that out there. Yeah. And I think at that moment they did feel like they were being honest. Like, oh, yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. I think that's I think that's the case. And I think that's exactly what we do. We focus on those areas where we do have integrity and where we are good. We focus on that and we just blank out all the rest of it. And like, yeah, I think that's what they're doing. Yeah. So, and then, of course, in a final desperation in their first defense here, they say, we're just not, we're not spies, okay? We're just not spies, okay? Well, that's not a very strong argument, but, but at least it's true, okay? At least it's true. They're being honest, and, and they're desperate here. Guys, these people are desperate. They are in fear for their lives at this point. Well, even if they were spies, you wouldn't go, eh, he's all right. Yeah, I know, yeah, I know. So... So, uh, like I say, the, the third point's not a very strong argument, okay? Uh, but, so Joseph comes back and he says, no. He says, you've come to look at the undefended part. So he's not swayed, okay? He's not at all swayed. And one thing comes clear to the brothers at this point, from their perspective, is this guy's not open for negotiation. This guy's not open for debate about this. He's made up his mind, okay? But now they kick it into gear with their second defense. Okay. And in their second defense, they escalate their, their points. Okay. But, but of the three assertions that they made in their first defense, what does their second defense focus on? Okay, it focuses on the first assertion of their first defense. Okay, the first assertion of their first defense was we are all brothers or we are all sons of one man. Okay, that's the argument they come back to in their second defense, because that really is the argument. Okay, a guy doesn't send 10 of his sons off on a risky mission like this. You know, he doesn't risk the life of 10 sons. Okay, it just isn't done. Okay, well, you know, there's an exception to every rule, probably. But it just isn't done. Okay. And so this is the argument they come back to. But what they don't realize is happening is is that they are now providing Joseph with the very information that he craves. Okay. I need to know about my family. And so they begin to elaborate on their family and they say, we are all the sons of. We are uh, 12 sons in all, 12 brothers in all. Okay, well, there's only 10 standing in front of them. So now they've broadened it. Now they're talking about the whole family. And Joseph realizes now I'm getting something out of these guys. Okay, so we are 12 brothers of one man in the land of Canaan. And 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 the youngest brother, he's back there with dad. Okay, he's still there today. They said, okay, he's with dad. Okay. And the other brother, he is no more. Some translations say he is no more or uh, 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 the New American says he is no longer alive. Okay. And so this is their second defense is, no, we, we really are. We're a family. We're 12 brothers 
And here's where the other two brothers are. Uh, Dad's back home in Canaan, you know, and, and they fleshed out the story a bit. Okay. Now, at the moment that his brothers appeared in front of him in the beginning of the chapter, at that moment, when they first appeared to him, what does Joseph know? He has ten brothers that are still alive. That's all he knows. And they're right there in front of him. He has the dreams. He has the promises of God. But the only thing he really knows for certain is he's got ten brothers in front of him. Okay. Now, after the brothers have given their second defense, what does Joseph know? Okay. His father is alive. Benjamin is alive. Okay. What else? They're in Canaan and they think he might be dead. Okay. They're in Canaan. Uh, they're in Canaan and he is considered to be dead. Or at least that's how the brothers represent it, that the family thinks he's dead. Okay. And uh, what else? He's dead. They're talking about him. They're talking about Joseph. Yeah. So, so he knows that they think he's dead. Okay. Anything else? Does he know anything about the family dynamics? Okay. You know, from Joseph's perspective, what does that say? I mean, I know we can sit here and say maybe there's no favoritism going on. But from Joseph's perspective, what does that say? Yeah. You know, there's still some things that need to change at home. Okay. You know, there's a reason why Benjamin's not here. He's back with dad. Okay, so these this is these are the things that Joseph either knows or thinks he knows at this point. Okay, how does Joseph respond to this second defense? Okay, he just rejects it. Yeah, yeah, he's just not going to be moved. So, so at this point, how does Joseph begin to look? How does Zaphonath-Paneah begin to look to these ten brothers? Quite unreasonable. Yeah, he really is starting to look unreasonable. You know, he really is starting to look like a tyrant. Okay, and like he's really not interested in the facts. Okay, now you have to keep that in mind that this is the frame of mind of the brothers when Joseph starts insisting that he see Benjamin. Okay, I want to see Benjamin, and the brothers are going. This guy's not in complete control of his faculties. Okay. Okay. I'm not sure we want to bring Benjamin down here. This is not a good idea. Okay. But uh, you, you just have to keep that in the back of your mind. But, oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Very possibly, yeah. 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 Yes. Yes. A lot of our problems. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, and of course, again, we don't know what would have happened. The narrative doesn't tell us what would have happened. Uh, I don't necessarily assume 
that Joseph would have not gone ahead with some tests. And, and I'll get into the reason for that next week is that it's one thing for somebody to say something. It's another thing for them to prove it with their life. And that's actually what Joseph, of course, is after here, is he wants to see a visible demonstration in the life of his brothers, which ultimately he will see, and it's very gratifying. But, uh, but it does, you know, it raises a question. <laughs> he might have expedited things considerably here had his brothers been more forthright. But, but, what, is, but what is happening here is that by Joseph's rejection of their defense, he is beginning to set in motion his plan of attack. Okay? He's beginning to set in motion the plan by which he is going to determine the condition of the family and the plan by which he is going to effect the fulfillment of the dreams. Okay? So he's really doing two things here, and keep that in mind. He's trying to figure out where the family is and the condition of the family, and he's trying to set in motion the uh, uh, fulfillment of his dreams. Uh, and so then Joseph makes this oath by the life of Pharaoh. So he's very dogmatic about this. By the life of Pharaoh, he says, I'm going to test you guys. And, and you're not going from this place until your younger brother returns. Notice he doesn't call him by name because he doesn't know his, theoretically doesn't know his name. He says, until your younger brother comes to me or comes here. And, uh, and so he sets out this test and he says, in, the, in Benjamin coming, or your youngest brother, coming back to Egypt, coming down to Egypt, we will determine whether or not your words are true. Okay. Now, it's, it's not just in the coming of Benjamin that the words are determined to be true, but it's in the coming of Benjamin and the questioning of Benjamin that his words, will, that the words of the brothers will be turned true. Obviously, if you've got ten guys and they're spies and they say they have a younger brother and you say, well, go get your younger brother and that'll be proof. You know, obviously, if they really were spies, they'd just go get somebody and they'd come down and he'd say, yeah, I'm their brother and, you know, they'd be off the hook. So Joseph isn't that stupid, you know. So, obviously, Joseph's intention is not only to get Benjamin back or get Benjamin down to Egypt, but he wants, he wants to have a good, long conversation with Benjamin. And what he wants to find out, of course, is what's going on with the family. Okay, so, so this is his plan and this is the test that he sets forth. And he says, so what we're going to do is we're going to keep nine of you here and you send one back. Now, notice he says, you send one. What does that imply? They, have to decide who's going back. they get to choose which brother goes back. Okay. Now, from what he knows of his brothers, this gives an opportunity for some interesting dynamics, right? So they get to choose whom they send back to get their little brother and bring back to Egypt. Okay. And uh, so he wants to make sure that they have plenty of time to talk this over among themselves and think this thing through and come to a decision. So he puts them up in the local Hilton and uh, gives them a conference room to talk. Uh, you're shaking your head, Debbie. <laughs> what does he do with them? He puts them in prison, presumably the same prison that he was a prisoner in for several years. So he puts them in there for three days. 
And then when he brings them out, they put that plan into action, right? Change. Okay. A different plan. An altered plan. Okay. And, and the, the altered plan is not if you go back and one stays here in confinement. Okay. And the question is, why another plan? You know, what has happened between when he swore that they would never leave until their brother came back? What has, what has, what has changed in the last three days? Well, Again, the narrator doesn't tell us. Moses doesn't tell us what happened. Okay? So the question is, what, what has transpired here that we, we have another, we have a different plan? And I would suggest there are at least three things that have happened that have changed the plan. Uh, this, this change of plan is a result of Joseph fearing God. Okay. So Joseph having three days to think about things, is thinking, okay, what is the godly way? What is the godly way to do this? And what he recognizes is that although it was okay for him to give this aura of harshness in his speech to them, he cannot act towards them unrighteously or unjustly. And so... That's why he says when he brings them back out or when he talks to them at the end of three days, he says, do this and live for I fear God. Now, he doesn't say Yahweh. He doesn't use he doesn't use the name of the covenant God of Israel for obvious reasons. He uses the generic name for God. okay? because he doesn't want to associate himself with Yahweh at this point. That would be a dead giveaway. So he uses the generic name Elohim for God. But he says, I fear God. And the point is, I have to. And whatever I do with you, I have to act righteously and I have to act justly. Yes, Ron. We'll get to that. Yeah, we're getting there. Yeah. So the first thing is, he's the, the first reason there's a change is because because it's a result of his fearing God. This plan shows more grace. This, this plan shows more justice and more righteousness. This is not the action of a... The second plan is not the action of a tyrant. It's the action of a reasonable ruler, okay, who's willing to listen to reason. The second thing is it's a result of reflection. This change of plan is a result of a reflection. He's had three days to reflect, okay? And the second plan is really a better plan because the second plan actually in some ways recreates or creates the same scenario under which he was mistreated. The favored son taken away from the protection of the father and in the presence in the hands of his bitter enemies. Okay? So, Joseph, thinking that Benjamin is probably getting this kind of favoritism that he got and maybe the same treatment, trying to find out he's getting the same treatment from his brothers, wants to create a scenario that's very similar to the scenario he faced at Dotham, where he's away from the protection of his father and in the hands of his bitter enemies. What will they do? What will these enemies do? Okay. So in creating a scenario where Benjamin is now away from his father and in the hands of his ten brothers, what will happen? Okay. Now, you know, the red flags might go up at this point and the you know the sirens No, Joseph, don't you know what happened to you? Well, that's not going to happen with Benjamin. Why is it not going to happen with Benjamin? 
Yeah, their brother, the brothers' lives are hanging on the life of Benjamin. So while it is perhaps a little risky, it doesn't entail the same risk that it did with Joseph because these brothers' lives depend on them delivering Benjamin safely to him. And of course, when he gets to Joseph, then he's safe. So it doesn't entail nearly the same risk, but it creates somewhat the same scenario. So it's really a better plan and one that Joseph's been able to develop, apparently, through some reflection. Uh, the change of plan is also, and this comes back to the point Ron was making, the this, this second plan is also a result of a sense of responsibility. Joseph senses his responsibility to the families. So we can't just keep these guys here indefinitely and keep this food here because he's got people back there that are starving to death. And the thing that we saw about Joseph is that is that when he remembered his dreams, what strikes Benjamin is not or excuse me, what strikes Joseph is not the sense of 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 the honor and the power that he gets in his brothers bowing down to him, but that sense of responsibility that someone has when someone bows down to them. Who is the greatest among you, but he who is the servant of all? And that's the attitude that Joseph has about his brothers bowing down to him. The attitude his brothers had when they first heard the dreams is, we're not going to give honor, we're not going to give homage to Joseph. But the thing that impresses Joseph is, I'm going to have a responsibility and an obligation to my family. And I'm going to have to care for them. And so that sense of responsibility comes up here and he realizes this is what we need to do. And so he institutes this second plan where he will send uh, the nine brothers back with the food and keep only one. And we'll see how that one is selected uh, next week. But... Well, possibly the, the intriguing thing here is we really don't know what happened during those three days. You know, and I and I have to assume that Joseph had ears in the prison. You know, he probably had people in the prison listening in on those conversations. But but it doesn't tell us any of that stuff. So we really don't we really don't know for certain. But there is a there is kind of a troubling aspect of this. And some commentators raise this. And so I just want to address it real briefly is some suggest that Joseph, because he is to some degree revengeful and bitter, is acting in a way that's irresponsible towards his father. That he's jeopardizing the life of his father in doing things the way he's doing it. And that that is a reflection of Joseph's uh, perhaps bitterness or resentment that he's not really giving the kind of thought or attention to his father that, uh, <clears throat> that he ought to be giving. Uh, and I would suggest to you that, that on the surface it may appear that way, but I don't think that that's a reasonable conclusion to make, and there's several reasons for that. One is, jo- Joseph really has no way to know the precarious condition of his father at this point. He, he doesn't know anything about Jacob's condition. And it will become clear later in the story to him when the brothers start saying, if we do this, you know, it's going to kill our dad. Okay. So later it becomes obvious to him the precarious position of Jacob. 
uh, condition of Jacob. But at this point, uh, he, he doesn't have any awareness of that. Okay. Uh, the second thing is, as I've already pointed out, there's not a great deal of risk inherent in this. Okay, at least from Joseph's point of view. There's not a great deal of risk inherent. It does recreate the scenario, but it doesn't recreate the risk because these ten guys have every possible reason to keep Benjamin alive till they get into Egypt. Okay? So, in that respect, Jacob is not thinking in terms of there's a great deal of risk here. But, on the final point, what he's really needing to do is he's needing to, to recreate this scenario so that so that his brothers have a chance to be tested in the way they were tested before and failed. And so it's like they've, they've been tested once and they have failed miserably and now we're down the road many years and we want to put them in a similar test to see how they do. And as I was thinking about that, I was thinking how oftentimes that's our experience, isn't it? We go through tests in our life and we fail. And down the road, maybe a few weeks or a few months or a few years later, we encounter a very similar test. And sometimes it's easy at that point to kind of throw up our hands and go, do I ever get past this? You know, <laughs> Why does God keep doing this to me? Why does he? Well, the reason he keeps doing this to us is to see whether or not we've grown whether or not we've changed. I remember there was a particularly really intense time of testing in my own life a number of years ago, and I just really dropped the ball. Okay, I really dropped the ball on it. And, and it had pretty serious repercussions in my own life, spiritually, and my walk with the Lord, and my relationship with my family. And, you know, it just, it just really had some pretty unhelpful uh, impact on Everybody involved. And over a period of time, the Lord showed me where I'd gone wrong and what had happened and why it happened. And I got a pretty good understanding. I said, okay, we got, we got that down. Okay. And then about five, six, seven, eight years later, boom, I'm facing all the same temptations again. And I could feel welling up inside of me all those old ways of acting and ways of thinking. And I could see the temptation just to slide into that old way of living. And what God was doing was He's saying, okay, Rick, have you really grown? Have, have, have you really learned those lessons that you thought you learned? And I had to make some choices then. Okay? I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to deny that craving of the flesh to act in, in those ways and to think in those ways. I'm going to deny those things and I am going to live by faith the way God wants me to live. And I had to make a conscious decision to do that. That's what's going on here with the life of the brothers. It's what goes on in our life. And the question is, when you're facing the same test you faced before, have you grown? Have you improved? Somebody has said, that insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again and expecting the same result. And what God is wanting to see is are we insane or have we really learned? Okay, well next week we'll go on.